people don't realize is that's how horse training should be is it should never be like every now and then, you know, you get a big breakthrough and that's great. But for the most part, every day is just kind of boring and very simple. And you move so slowly that, you know, the progress over a short term, you don't really see it, but it just has been so easy with this horse. And, you know, people say about dressage, well, the horse has to be light and the horse has to be in self-carriage. Um, but they say all those things, but then the horses really aren't. And, and I just remember riding all the time and being like, okay, well, the instructor says it looks good. Everybody else says it's good, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Or is this really what it's supposed to feel like? Okay. I guess, you know, everybody else is doing the same. So I guess this must be right. And I always have think pretty been been pretty good about trusting my intuition where if I do something and it doesn't feel right, it probably means that it isn't. Um, and so then trying to find a different way. Every year I feel like I'm reinventing my riding and I'm sure that it's never going to stop. Too many people get stuck in doing one thing and they forget to look outside of that and forget to, you know, remember that there's so many other options out there and that you can't, you don't have to do everything a certain way just because that's what your method is. Like think that a lot of people with problem horses are really just horses with people problems. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a happy, light and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication, so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritising partnership with your horse. Want to find out my horse training philosophy? Access the free connection and communication mini course at amaliadempsey.com. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Welcome to episode 13 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast and in this episode I'm going to be interviewing Juliet from JC Horse Training. Juliet is a trainer based out of Redmond in Washington and her training methods are focused on building a balanced, relaxed relationship between horse and rider. She teaches dressage as well as liberty work, focusing on building a connection on the ground, on and offline. Juliet has over 18 years of experience riding, training and showing horses in dressage, eventing, hunter jumpers, English and Western performance. She has been teaching in the Pacific Northwest for nine years and has recently started teaching clinics locally and internationally in British Columbia. Her training methods combine natural horsemanship and dressage to create balance and harmony with horse and rider. Now, Juliet has quite an impressive resume having worked for Cavalia. And inside this interview, we talk a lot about Cavalia, as well as, you know, all the controversial topics as usual. She talks about her kind of training style and um, who inspires her, what books she's reading and how she has um, developed to become such a good horsewoman, both in classical dressage and liberty training. So I'm really excited to present this interview with you. I love how Julia is really balanced in her opinion about things and she keeps it really real and she's really honest in this interview. So I really hope that you get a lot out of it. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview. 
Welcome, Juliet, to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited about today's interview. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited too. Cool. Well, let's get stuck into the first question. So can you tell us about your horsemanship journey to date, when you got into horses and what has led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I was born, my whole family is French. I was born in France. Um, Now I live in the US and we've been here for about uh, 14 years. But my mom loved horses. She never had her own horse, but she grew up riding. And so when I was maybe pretty much since I could walk, I think she put me in riding lessons uh, when we were in France. So I started out kind of in your typical European riding club, riding little Shetland ponies and doing show jumping, um, getting bucked off left and right. Um, Not necessarily learning so much about horsemanship. I mean, it was more about just being a tough kid and getting on a horse and running up to jumps as fast as you can. And if you fell off, you got back on. So, so that's how I started riding probably from when I was about five to when I was about 10, which is when we moved to the U S and we bought our first horse. So me and my mom, we knew how to ride, but we knew nothing on how to take care of a horse or how to train a horse. Um, we're like total newbies as far as that went. So, you know, we moved to the U S and a month later we went to look at a horse. We bought the first horse that we went to look at. She was a fjord mare who was 13 and had 30 days of training on her. That's it. Uh, when we tried her, she, I couldn't get her to trot. I couldn't get her to canter. Um, she almost bucked me off. She kind of ran us over, but we thought she was really cute. So we bought her. Um, and she gave us a lot of trouble when we brought her home because she wanted nothing to do with us. She didn't want to work. She had lived in a pasture her whole life and never been told what to do. And so now all of a sudden these people are taking her out and trying to ride her every day and make her do all these things that she had absolutely no interest in. So that's when we uh, we started looking for kind of alternative methods because we had a trainer tell us, well, you know, you need to sell this horse. You can't do anything with her. Um, she got to the point where every time we'd come to get her, she would run to the opposite side of the pasture or she would try to bite us and kick us. Uh, when I tried to ride her, all she would do is go backwards. Um, it just, it didn't work. She was not happy. She was not happy to see us. And so it was just not fun. And that's when my mom started, she came across clicker training. Um, and so she bought a book and a DVD and we watched all the videos and we started doing that with her going out, playing games, uh, teaching her to target things, to pick up objects. Um, and then progressively we started using it in the writing and all that. And that for me as a kid was so much fun. I used to get so mad if my mom had gone to the barn and played with the pony without me because then we couldn't give her any more food. So I I wasn't allowed to play with her again. So I I just loved it so much. And then she was, she was at the gate greeting us all the time. Um, And so that's kind of what started, I think my horsemanship journey and, and trying to find alternative methods and things like that is this difficult kind of pony mare. And then from there, we got some, some more horses and I started riding more um, in 4-H and I was doing a little bit of hunter jumpers, a little bit of dressage, a little bit of cross country, some Western, everything you can possibly think of. 
um, as well as also being a competitive vaulter. So I started vaulting. So I was competing in vaulting and doing every possible horse sport you can possibly think of. Um, and then also experimenting and playing a lot with my own pony, Oreo, who we got a little bit later. Um, and he's the one who really kind of taught me how he was my guinea pig. He's had to go through a lot. I've gone through a lot of phases in my training, some nice ones, some probably not so nice ones. Um, so he's been, a, he's been my, my teacher and that's how I really started getting into more like trick training and liberty work and stuff like that was, that was kind of with him. Wow. So, yeah, that's kind of like my childhood journey as far as, as riding and being around horses. That is such a varied and broad background. That's incredible. <laughs> I can definitely relate to you when you said you got that fjord horse first and nothing sort of went to plan. And even when you looked at him or her, it was like nothing really, you know, went well, but we bought him anyway. <laughs> I did right. the same thing. <laughs> um, how interesting. Totally not appropriate horse for beginners, you know, but. So many people do that. She's cute. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. She looked nice in photos. <laughs> Um, and how interesting that you got into clicker training from a pretty early age. That's cool. Cause I think a lot yeah, of take a, a long time to kind of get to that. Um, and you're a vaulter. Wow. That's so cool. That explains a lot in terms of what you yeah. do now as well. And all the amazing photos that I see of you on Instagram doing handstands and that sort of thing on your horses. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I love how you also said that, you know, you've been through phases with Oreo, like some not nice, some nice. And yeah, that's, I think people can relate to that as well. So tell us now, what does a day in the life of Juliet look like today? So now I've, in this past year, I've really kind of developed my training business. Um, and my parents have a small barn. We have about five horses at home, um, four hours, and one is the boarder who I have in training. Um, so I, I teach a few lessons out of our place, but mostly I travel to surrounding barns. Um, so right now I have, I'd say probably four to five different barns that I go to throughout the week. Um, some I go to only once a week, some it's four to five days a week. So um, during the summer, um, I'm a lot more, a lot busier. I can, cause I can work longer days. We have more light and the weather is nicer because we live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and most places that I go to are just outdoors. So I'm limited as to what I can do during the winter when the weather is not, not so good. Um, but I would say now I probably on kind of my busiest days, I'll have between five and 10 horses, um, that I go to work. So some of them it's going to be, I have, I have really like a pretty broad range of different horses and clients. You know, I have, young horses who I'm, I have one that I've started under saddle this year. And last year I started three or four under saddle. Um, I have some horses that come to me for retraining, um, who have maybe not gone through the proper process or, um, don't have very good basics or have problems like, you know, spooking, rearing, bucking, biting, anything like that. Um, and then I also have people who come to me just for lessons. Um, either I do dressage lessons and then groundwork and liberty lessons, depending on what people want. So 
like a, on my busiest day, which would be like a Thursday, I usually start out the day around 6, 7 a.m., feed my own horses, um, ride my own horse in the morning, or else when I get home, he doesn't, he doesn't get any attention. I'm too tired. So, so I do him and sometimes the other horse that I have, that I have over in training. And then I head over to one of my other barns where I have two little horses in training. Um, sometimes the owners are there, sometimes they're not. For the most part, I kind of just work on my own. Um, and then the second place that I go to is really sweet family barn it has a lot of different horses people kind of do all different kinds of diff disciplines so it's really my kind of atmosphere I'm not big on fancy show barns or anything like that I like to work with all different kinds of horses I mean I have Frisians curly horses Arabians warm bloods uh, Lusitanos everything you can possibly think of you know I've worked with some gated horses as well um, so, and that really works for me also. I learn a lot more being able to experiment with different breeds and different sizes and different people. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what my day looks like. It varies on different days and throughout the year, people come to me for training for long-term, sometimes it's short-term, so it kind of depends. Yeah, wow. And once again, such a broad and varied range of horses that you're working with and, and the type of work you're doing as well. Um, do you find that the horses that you get in for retraining are more difficult or challenging than the ones that are kind of a blank canvas? Yeah, definitely. So right now I have a um, who just turned three-year-old Frisian who came to me last summer as halter broke and that's it. And, and it's really one of the first times where I've had a horse who's been pretty much completely unhandled and his owners are really great and but they're complete amateurs and so they've really given me the freedom and the trust to teach them and to train the horse how I see fit and so it's just been so and and this horse is relatively easy to work with also but it just feels like it has been so easy and I, and I've gone and I take my time and I go really slow in my training. And so it never feels like there's one big breakthrough, but when we've introduced this horse to, to, to riding, to, to groundwork, to tarps, to balls, to spooky things, it, there's, there's never been a, a big reaction. Nothing's ever been a big deal, which which I think is something that people don't realize is that's how horse training should be is it should never be like every now and then, you know, you get a big breakthrough and that's great. But for the most part, every day is just kind of boring and very simple and you move so slowly that, you know, the progress over a short term, you don't really see it, but it just has been so easy with this horse and, and everything from the beginning to now how he is starting to go under saddle is really easy. Whereas, you know, I take, I have some other horses, Frisians also in training who have, um, are a little bit older and have been started with very modern riding techniques, um, ridden very overflexed. Um, it's, it's really difficult because mentally and physically, um, the horse is, there's just, there's so much to fix, yeah. um, Physically, I feel like it's it's 
really hard. Um, like these horses who are extremely tense in their necks and in their backs is really hard on my neck and on my back also. So that that is something that I find that is probably the hardest for me, especially for, you know, I'm only five foot two and I ride all these really big horses. Um, and so when they don't move properly with a swinging back, I just, it, it, it's painful. And, and I'm sure it's painful, painful for the horse also. And it, and it takes so much longer to retrain a horse, to use their, their, their body correctly and to respond correctly to the rider's aids than it is to just train them correctly from the start. So, you know, like what I've noticed riding young horses is every single young horse that I've sat on will naturally halt from my seat without me having to touch the reins. And most older horses that I ride that I've had other kinds of training don't. They, They really almost ignore the rider's seat because they've been made dull almost and so if you're just light with them from the start then they remain that way and they don't need to be made light again which, yeah. which is, for me is, is that's that's the hard part yeah wow I can really relate to the everyday training being kind of boring because you know Instagram's a highlight reel you're gonna put the right. cool stuff on Instagram <laughs> I want to do that today. And it's like, actually, you have to do all these steps first. And they, a lot of people just don't want to put in the time to do those steps first. Um, and you also mentioned all those different breeds that you work with. Do you have a favorite breed? Uh, for me, my favorite breed is the Lusitanos. So like my own horse. Um, I really fell in love when I went to Cavalia. And that was really the main kind of horses that we had. I just felt like they are so... Every single one that I have met is like incredibly smart and brave and they can do everything. Um, and for me also being a smaller rider, they're usually, you know, between 14, three and 15, three hands. Yeah. And so, and kind of compact horses. And so they fit my body type really well. And so that's really the kind of horse that I'm physically most comfortable on and that I just feel like I the most with so that's what my own horse is which might also be why I'm biased yes amazing I've got a Lusitano on my horse wish list so maybe one day <laughs> um and we're going to talk about Cavalia in a minute but before we go into that can you tell us what else you're interested in outside of horses more horses yeah <laughs> <laughs> spending more time I mean one of the highlights for me is going camping in the summer with my horse and going to the beach and taking my horse places and having more time to do stuff with my horse. So uh, I also, um, I also love to travel. If I could travel the world with my horse, I would, but no, I can't. So, um, so I, I really, my girlfriend and I love backpacking, um, even traveling, doing small road trips here and there, camping, things like that, but mostly spending time with my horse or the dogs or just being outside in general. Yeah. How cool. That's so good. Yeah. You you sound the same as me. Like I could ride horses all day long and get home and read about horses and watch horse videos all night. (laughs) I never get sick of it. (laughs) Um, Now, do you have a mantra that you like to live by? Um, So, yeah. So I was, when I was reading through your questions, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to say, but it took me a while. So what I came up with is my value does not decrease the value of others. And so, and what I mean by that is that 
it's kind of my way of reminding me that, you know, my knowledge has value. What I bring to the table has value, but just because somebody else does not necessarily agree or that they have different values from me, it doesn't make me more important, but it also doesn't make me less important because self-confidence is a little bit something that I've struggled with in the horse industry. And I think it can be difficult to stay humble and stay open-minded, but to also kind of stay true to your own values. So that, that is something I've really struggled with is, you know, I've, I've worked with people who have made me feel like everything I knew was wrong and that I could do absolutely nothing right unless it was done exactly the way that they wanted, which is not true. And, and I, and while I do not know everything and, and there's plenty of things that I still have to learn, I do know things. And, and now I've been able to, to know, all right, this is kind of my core values that I don't deviate from. And then from there, I can have an open mind. Yeah. Wow. Well, you certainly don't come across as an unconfident person. I was actually thinking before when you were talking, I was like, I like this girl. She's really confident and sure of herself. Taking a um, long time. <laughs> um, but I know what you mean. Like it's really hard to stay kind of humble, but it, it it's hard to kind of acknowledge what you already know while staying open-minded, whilst right. not letting your ego get in the way. It's really hard to find <laughs> that balance. So yeah, I really like what you had to say there. But I'm really excited to talk about Cavalia. Um, so can you tell us how you got into Cavalia and what kind of training did you have to do to get into Cavalia? Just tell us all about Cavalia. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it was like a, my dream as a kid when I was, um, I mean, I was lucky enough that I live in the Seattle area and Cavalia would come and set up their tent literally 10 minutes away from my house. Um, and so when I was 13, my mom took me to see the first show. And as soon as the show started and the horses came on stage, I told her I'm going to be on the stage. And she laughed, although I don't think she doubted that I was serious. And I think from the day that I went and saw that show, you know, I came home and again, my ponies had to go through a lot because I decided that they were now going to be trick riding horses, that they were now going to be Liberty horses, that they were going to be dressage horses, that they were going to do everything that they were doing in the show and that I was going to use them to practice. Um, so I started trying to teach them to roam and ride. I started and I, I had also, I was already a vaulter and a rider. And so I continued with a lot of that. Um, and I've dabbled in, in kind of circus arts also. Um, and so been here and there the the vaulting I think really helped because it really has a performance aspect um and although I was doing competitions for me the the performance and the choreography um that was really what I loved to do and I liked competing but I really liked when we would put on demos and I could choreograph something that I wanted with no rules um and put on a, a show kind of um so that was I mean I had already kind of been training for that. I think for, for the riders on Cavalia, a lot of it is being really well-rounded, um, being able to handle all different kinds of horses, uh, but also, you know, being able to do trick riding, to do dressage, to do some Liberty, a little bit of everything. So 
Um, and so when they came to, for the second time, when they came to Seattle area, um, they hire locals to help either clean the stalls or feed horses or something like that. So um, I was 16 or seven, 17 at the time. So I went to work for them as just backstage during the show. So I would work the five to midnight shift um, six days a week for the whole time that they were here. Um, and I would feed horses and help turn out on days that there wasn't the show. Um, and I didn't get to see the show the whole time, except for on the, on the last day, but I got to be in, I got to know the show really well, because when you're backstage, uh, whenever the show is going, you know, you have, you can sort of see the show because there's screens up um, so that everybody knows which act they're on and all that. The music is always playing through the barn again, so that we have an idea of the timing. Um, and I just remember how the every day there was kind of the nightly routine of the horses that would happen during the show. So, you know, at, when you hear this moment of the music, that's when you're supposed to go through and throw a flake of hay in all the stalls. And then when you hear this part of the music, you go through and you close all the windows of the stalls because afterwards the VIP tour is going to be coming through. Um, so things like that. And so doing that, um, I met a lot of people. I met a lot of the cast and the crew. And I just kind of started asking people, you know, I want to be in the show. I want to be in the show. Like, what, what do I need to do? And, and pestering people. And, and so I made friends and I made connections. And, um, and, and nothing really happened. And I was too young anyways to be in the show. They didn't hire anybody who was under 18. So I kept writing and I kept vaulting. Um, and a few years later, I also, um, I would, go and do some performances with other groups here and there at like state fairs, um, horse expos and things like that. So I went and I did one at the Sacramento State Fair where I met somebody who um, knew somebody who was doing auditions for Cavalia. So she, they put me in touch and um, when they, they happened that they were coming through Seattle and so they came and they met me and I did an audition for them. Um, and then afterward they offered me um, a job on the tour that was going to China which I didn't want to take honestly oh. I I had because they have two shows they had Odiseo and they had Cavalia and Cavalia was in China um, and I had a friend who had been to China and and didn't like it um, and then I really wanted to be on the North American tour so that I could stay closer to home and I wanted to be on Odiseo and so at first you know I, I kept saying well I don't want to go to China if, if they offer me the China job I'm I'm not going and then they were like, well, you know, we need riders. Are you interested? And so I decided, well, you know what? Okay, why not? Um, and then the rest is history. And I, and I absolutely do not regret it. And I'm really glad I went to China and not on the, on, on the, other, on the other show because we had a much smaller cast. It was much more intimate show and it was just an incredible experience. That is amazing. I remember when I first watched, well, I've only seen Cavalia once, but I saw it when it came to Adelaide and I was actually having a break from horses at that time. And it was one of the things that inspired me to get back into horses. But I do remember watching it and thinking, hmm, I could run away with the horse circus here. <laughs> and I think most girls watching Cavalia would be thinking that at some point in the show. Um, now, China, how was working in China? Like, 
what was like why did you not want to go there did you miss your horse when you were there and what was it like working with horses in China were they did they bring the horses over from wherever Cavalier horses are are kept like how did that all work so the when I went to China the show had already been in China for a few years and it's so the show Cavalia is the original one that they mm-hmm. created. And that's that's probably the show that you saw um, because they're the ones that traveled all over the world. Um, Odiseo only traveled in North America, right. but Cavalia has really been all over the world. And so those horses have been all over the world. Wow. Um, although before they went to China, they were actually in Taiwan. Um, and because... Um, Taiwan and China, Chinese government do not have very good relations. The Chinese government wouldn't let the horses that were in Taiwan come into China. So that's at that point, and this was quite a few years ago, they actually swapped horses with Odiseo. And so the horses from Odiseo were sent to China and the horses that were in Taiwan, probably the horses that you saw in the show in Australia, um, were then sent onto Odiseo. So they did a team swap basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from that point on, they went into China and for uh, the company to stay in China, they had to belong in part to a Chinese company. So that's when the show was um, bought out by a Chinese investor. So, wow. and then after that they stayed in China. So, so they were in, in Beijing um, the first time they, they traveled kind of all over China, but the first time I went, they were in, uh, in Beijing, which was just so cool because China is not a place that I would have chosen to travel to. If I was deciding I'm going to travel the world, I wouldn't have said I'm, I'm going to China. I probably would have picked somewhere else, yeah. but I got to, you know, we had one day off a week, um, but it's so easy to travel in Asia that every time we had a day off, you know, we would look at a map and pick out a point and say, let's go there. And we'd see a picture and, and you just go with your friends and you go on an adventure and nobody spoke Chinese. Um, but it was fun because we had our, in a lot of ways, it didn't feel like living in China because we really had our team and we didn't mix very much with the, with the outside world. And, you know, we were pretty much completely provided for, we were in a nice hotel, we were housed and fed Um, We had shuttles that took us to and from work. Um, And so afterwards, you know, going out and things like that, you it's in, in, in China in Beijing, a little bit more people that speak English. So it's a it was a little bit easier, not very much, but a little bit easier to navigate around. Um, But we made it work. Um, You know, we group up with, I mean, you like eat, sleep and work with the same people every single day so it can be difficult but it's becomes really like a big family um so i think that was my favorite part and it's probably the part that i miss the most yeah. um so that was our first the first city that i did and then um after we did about six months in beijing so after six months we were going to go on a tour break that originally was only supposed to be two or three weeks which turned into nine months Wow. And part of that is because the investors that own the show, um, I think we're not super interested in it. I don't know. We don't, nobody knows why they bought it. And, and so we, even 
Cavalia, the company, was not really the ones who were deciding when we were going to have shows or where we we're going to do it. It was really up to our Chinese investors, and so we oh kind of had to just go home and and wait. Um, and so, all some people went back to work and and or went to other jobs. I went home and worked a little bit, taught some lessons, um, and then you know, eight nine months later, they kind of called us back and they said, "Hey." we're going to change. We're going to go to a new city. Do you want to come back? So yes, I went back. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't say no. Um, I, I just really, I just really loved it. So I went back. And so then when, when the horses are not in show, um, they usually find a boarding stable or something like that. And the horses become normal horses go and turn out and, and, and they kind of, they get a break. Um, so we had to come back and we only had, uh, a month or a month and a half to get all the horses back in shape and to put them back in the show, which, which was hard. It was, it was, it was pushing it a little bit, but you know, we didn't really have a choice. It was what the investors wanted. So it was kind of what we had to give them. Um, so then we were in uh, Nanjing, which is a little bit more South. It's pretty close to Shanghai, mm -hmm. uh, which was really cool because it's a new city for us to discover. And it, we got to, travel around a whole bunch also on our days off and see so many things that I would have never seen in my life if if I hadn't gotten this experience um, and so we were in, in Nanjing for six to seven months then we went in on, on another really kind of long tour break and then we came back to Nanjing um, at the same location we did another six to seven months of shows and that's that's the last last shows that they that they've done so are they not doing any more shows or is it no nah. okay no um the horses are have really kind of been sitting at a barn at a farm with a team that takes care of them turns them out they're not they're not being worked um i went back last year and the year before um mostly as a groom to to help clean stalls and take care of the horses i didn't have much going on during the winter and and one of my friends was stable manager so um, so I went back for a couple months and, and it was, it was nice because with, uh, with another friend, we kind of had, you know, free range to do what we wanted with the horses, as long as stall cleaning was done and the horses got fed after that, it was like, you, you know, you want to ride? Sure. Ride. You want to do Liberty, do Liberty. So, so me and my friend played around and, and, um, and we tried putting the Arab Liberty team back together and working on some things that I had had trouble with in, during the show and hoping that maybe we would get to do another show, but hasn't happened. And, and I don't know that it will, but, but it was, it was a cool experience also to be able to train without having the pressure of doing a show. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm really curious to know, like when you said it's probably, probably was the same horses that came to Adelaide and like all over the world, how did the horses cope with traveling so much? Like I'd imagine that would be quite a bit of stress for them. And also I know that in Adelaide, they, they didn't have access to pasture or anything. So how did, how did that work and how do the horses cope with that? So, I mean, as far as the actual um, traveling, I think they were so used to it that it going from one place to another was never so much a big deal for them. And especially because, you know, they were, they were changing barns during tour breaks, but when they come back, when we come back under the big top, everything is the same. Everything yeah. looks the same. The stalls yeah. all look the same. And depending on where, which locations we were at, 
Um, like in both Nanjing and Beijing, we had space outside for us to set up outdoor paddocks. And so the horses would get to go outside and turn out um, for one or two hours a day, um, every day. Um, not everywhere that they went, they had, they had access to turnout. Um, I know when they were in Hong Kong, it was a really small kind of plot that the, that the place was in, but they also didn't stay there for as long as we were in Beijing or in, uh, in Nanjing. So like Odiseo who toured, um, North America, they would do usually kind of do shows for three months but they would do a lot more shows. It would be closer to six to eight shows a week. Um, so on the Saturday and Sunday, usually it would be two shows and then Mondays were off. And then afterwards the horses would go on a usually two or three week break where they would go out to pasture and all that. Enough time to set up the tent in, a, in the next city and then and then they move. So so when they were getting actual like regular tour breaks, that's kind of how it worked. It'd be two, three months of shows, two, three weeks off, two, three months of shows, two, three weeks off. So China, the China situation, especially towards Zan, was a little bit different, a little bit particular. Um, and so it, I think it was harder for them to have nine months off and then have to do shows and then have nine months off again and then have to do shows. That That's where we, I think, started having the most issues with, with yeah. some of the horses. Um, yeah. Hmm. I was even thinking the change of feed from more so different countries, I guess. So actually for the fee, they import all of their hay from Canada. So ah, wow. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. that would be expensive, I'd imagine. Getting yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> it, it is. It is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's crazy. Um, so obviously you would have learned a lot of um, training techniques and liberty and dressage within Cavalia, but can you tell us where you learned liberty training like from the start, who's kind of mentored you, who's coached you and, and how you've um, become so good at liberty? <laughs> to be honest, no one. I mean, if I'd say if somebody mentored me, it would have been my pony, Oreo. Um, when I, when we got him, he was always like very playful by nature. Um, and as a kid, I would go out and run in the pasture and he'd kind of run after me and, 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 you know, run around me and run and buck. And, and I thought that was really fun. And I, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know I was doing Liberty. I was just, I was just playing with my horse. Um, and so, and when I started and I started kind of teaching him tricks, you know, I decided one day, I want to teach him to rear. So I went out to the barn and I got on bareback with a halter and started tugging on his head until he reared up and gave him a treat. Um, and, and then I started experimenting with teaching him different tricks. And I think by doing that, then, you know, I would watch videos. Oh, well, you know, how do I teach my horse how to do this? Or how do I teach my horse how to do that? And I think doing that, I started coming across more videos of people doing Liberty. And I thought, it was really cool. And so I started watching and then going down to the bar and being like, okay, well, what happens if I try this? Oh, that didn't work. Okay. Let's try something else. <laughs> what happens if I try this, this, so Oreo, I, sometimes I've had, I've taught some students, some groundwork and things like that with him, but it's a little tricky because he doesn't respond necessarily to one specific method or he's got been trained so many different ways poor horse <laughs> yeah he's he's had he's had to put I, I've, he's never been abused or anything but he's had to put up with a kid changing her mind every 
10 minutes. Um, and so he's been, you know, I'm sure one day I taught him something and then the next day I started trying to teach him to do the same thing, but completely different way. Um, and so it was really with him that I started learning all of the stuff and, and then from just watching others and from watching videos and from experimenting. And then when I was at Cavalia is where my, uh, my boss or our uh, equestrian director, he's the one who taught me how to work with the six horses at Liberty, which I had done a little bit. Um, I had two of my, one of my clients had two Frisians who I had taught to work at Liberty a little bit side by side, um, but nothing like a little bit of the circus Liberty where you have all the horses going around. Um, and all these six horses were really well-trained, um, but not easy to, to work with. Um, so he taught me a lot um, on how to work with them and then basically just left me to my own devices and said, you know, if, make this act work. And, and, it, and it was hard because it worked in rehearsal, but not always in the show. Um, and so that's why I, I feel like I just didn't get enough time with those horses to be able to, to really do, um, especially now that I have more knowledge and all of that, I, I think about it a lot. And when we were able, I was able to work with them for a long time, not under the big top when we were just at the farm kind of messing around every day, I really got to understand them a lot better. And I feel like if I had another chance to, to take them, to take them and show I could do, I could do it a lot differently and, and a lot better. So. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it is, sounds like classic trial and error learning with that kind of playfulness. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. And is that how you learned your classical dressage training as well? Or did someone mentor you in that space? So that uh, for me as a kid, I did lots of jumping and dressage and all of that. And I never had one trainer really. Um, my mom would take me to some clinics here and there or a lesson here and there with somebody. Um, but I never had one person, um, teaching me, but I always feel like I had this feeling when I was riding that, you know, people say about dressage, well, the horse has to be light and the horse has to be in self carriage. Um, but they say all those things, but then the horses really aren't. And, and I just remember riding all the time and being like, okay, well, instructor says it looks good everybody else says it's good but it doesn't it doesn't feel good or is this really what it's supposed to feel like okay I guess you know everybody else is doing the same so I guess this must be right but I still always felt like I had kind of this voice in the back of my head that and so I think through the liberty or maybe it was through the dressage that I went to the Liberty. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I think, look, I was always looking for alternative methods. Um, and I always have, think pretty, been, been pretty good about trusting my intuition where if I do something and it doesn't feel right, it probably means that it isn't. Um, and so then trying to find a different way. So um for me, what kind of really started me on the classical dressage is I started um, kind of reading Philippe Carl's books, um, who has the leisure tame method, and and it's really started making sense 
um, he started explaining things and, 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 and I, and could actually give a reason for everything that he did. So I found, I was lucky. I found a local trainer who's looking for a working student. Um, and so I called her and she took me as her working student and she was really working with the Philippe Carl method. Um, and so I really started with that. And that's how I met my horse that I have now, Zamando. He belonged to the barn owner where I worked over there. Um, and um, because he's pretty much 90% blind, the trainer that I was working for, she'd had kind of a bad wreck off of him. They had a, a, a absolutely like state-of-the-art facility with mirrors all over the arena. Um, but he spooked and she was an older lady and she fell and she kind of hurt herself. So she was, she was not really keen to ride him so much. Um, and so I started working with him, but only on the ground and with Liberty work. Um, and then I started riding him under saddle and just absolutely fell like head over heels in love with this horse and, and the barn owners sold him to me. Um, and so after that, once I stopped, uh, being a working student for this trainer, then I, I kept riding in a similar way. Um, but I also started looking, kind of finding out that there's lots of different schools of riding even within the classical world um, and again experimenting so I rode in some clinics with um, with with some other people which sometimes I got some things that I liked and sometimes they still got some things that I didn't like um, but I would say in the past year um, I've been working with a new trainer who also I'm like so fortunate lives 10 minutes away from me and comes to my house to teach and and is an absolute gold mine um and i think for me this past year it's been the first time where it's everything that i've been doing with her has felt right and everything all the responses and the results that i'm getting that i'm getting out of my horses is is just mind-blowing which to somebody looking on the outside it probably isn't it probably looks like i'm doing nothing which is what i want the whole point, you know, I'm riding and my horse is, is, he's, is just mentally is so much different. He's really challenging because he can't see very well. He's a really nervous horse. Um, and he's always, he's been really challenging under saddle and there's how much he's changed in this past year with my Turner's help is, is just incredible. So I, I every year I feel like I'm reinventing my riding and I'm sure that it's never going to stop. Um, so, but I think this past year is where things really started kind of to click and, and where I feel like I can na really narrow down which way I want to keep my, my riding going. Yes. Yes. I can relate to that because I feel like my riding, my training is always evolving. How I trained a year ago is different to how I train now, which will be different to how I train in another year's time. But that's a good thing, right? It means we're always progressing, always growing. Now, you've mentioned a few horses. Exactly how many horses do you have? And can you tell us about each of their personalities? Yeah. So I have Zamando, who's my Lusitano gelding. And he's turning 17 this year. So he's the one who is has blindness issues. He doesn't have any lenses in his eyes. Um, and he's been like that ever since I had him. I knew exactly what was wrong with him when, when I got him, um, which is part of the reason why he's an extremely talented horse, uh, well-bred. He's got fantastic gaits, really athletic. Um, but I got him for cheap because he's handicapped, <laughs> which 
really uh, almost makes him even a better partner. I think um, the fact that he can't see very well, I've noticed he's, he likes being around other horses, but they intimidate him because he can't see well. And so I think he gets afraid that he can't spot signs that they give him and he can't get away quick enough if something's going to happen. And so he really has attached to humans and he just loves being around people um, like a dog. Sometimes we take our dogs for a walk around the street and, and I'll let him walk behind my parents who have the dogs and he walks behind them like he was on a leash or he's one of the dogs. So he has a very, that pretty much sums up his, his personality. Um, and he's been really challenging horse for me, but has really taught me a lot about finesse and kindness in my riding or else he's, he's unavailable. So then my other horse, my pony Oreo, who I've had, who's also turning 17 this year, him and Zamando are actually born on the same day of the same wow. year, wow. which I didn't know until I looked at their papers. That's um, crazy. Yeah, go figure. So Oreo I've had since I was 11 or 12. So I think I've had him for 12 years now. So he is my pony who is like my schoolmaster and has taught me everything. And, and I've done hunter jumpers and dressage and liberty and, and vaulting and everything you can possibly think of with him. So right now, um, I'm actually, um, I've decided it's a really hard decision, but I have a, a really great student who lives like an hour up north of me and who really wants a pony. Um, and so um, they're going to take him on a care, on a care lease um, so that he can keep being used by kids and they'll trailer him over. So uh, to take lessons and stuff like that. So he's, he's going to be, I don't have time to ride so many different horses. And so the past two years, he hasn't, you know, he's home and I play with him when I can, but I, I just don't have time to put in the amount of, of effort and training that, that he really deserves. So, so I have my, my little younger students who are going to be riding him and taking him to shows and enjoying him and having him as a teacher. So, um, so there's him. And then there's our Fjord mare who we still have, um, <laughs> who we thought about selling many times, but we never did. And now she is just living the happy retired life. She is, her name is Ballerina, and she is uh, turning 24 this year. Um, so, and then my mom also has a horse who's a, his name is Jake, he's a Percheron cross. So he was our team vaulting horse. Um, and so he's the horse I really learned to vault on and who's carried me through competitions and, and carried the whole family. Um, my dad rides him when we go to the ocean, my brother rides him. He, can take all of us swimming on his back. Um, he's, he's really our family horse. So, so he was retired this year also. He had a, a little bit of a neurologic condition this summer um, that became really serious um, to the point where he was, he was falling down and he almost couldn't keep himself up. He lost complete control of his hindquarters. We thought we were gonna have to put him down, but he, we treated him with some antibiotics and we don't know what happened, but he got a lot better. Um, so he's almost back to 100%, but we just had, he's retired and he gets he gets ridden a little bit walk trot by my mom and it's really cute because she's a really really tiny lady she's four foot eleven and she rides this big 
17 3 draft horse and they <laughs> so i cool. see them i see them from the top of the house and they plot around the arena so so he's um he's our special horse and then the other horse who we have at home who's not mine he's a boarder he's leo he's a big chestnut dutch warm blood um and so he belongs to a client of mine and they he was imported from the netherlands to be a vaulting horse and they still use him as a vaulting horse um and then i ride him three or four times a week um just to give him variety in his training so so those are all my horses that we have that i have at home Wow, a real variety there. And um, earlier you mentioned how much experimenting you've done with Oreo. You said you sort of felt sorry for him because you kept changing your mind about what kind of training you were doing. Do you have like your own system now? How would you summarize your own personal training approach or philosophy with horses? And do you use positive or negative reinforcement or both? So I use really a mix of positive and negative reinforcement. Um, with my own horses, I do a lot of clicker training, um, not necessarily under saddle as far as my, my dressage riding, I would say that's more negative reinforcement, you know, pressure, pressure release, um, not, not any kind of punishment based training. Um, and then I'll do clicker training sessions for fun, at least once a week. Um, or if I have an issue with, you know, horse putting on a bridle or something like that, then I switch over to we're doing okay we're doing only a positive reinforcement um base so i think using a mix of both with horses is is really important i i have a hard time i know some people say that they use only positive reinforcement um which i think with an animal that big is not always possible um and i think and i think sometimes it's misleading to say that you only use positive reinforcement because, you know, if you put a halter on a horse and you lead them forward, to me, that's negative reinforcement. So I think, I think some people have not necessarily a good understanding of what positive and negative reinforcement is. And that negative reinforcement isn't bad. It's just another method of training. And it's how horses interact with each other also out in the wild. You know, if a horse comes up and pushes against another one the other one either chooses whether or not he wants to move off that pressure or wants to fight back so I don't think negative reinforcement is a a natural way to train the horses so but as far as mythology I maybe if you ask me that question again in five six years I'll have a different answer but for now I think I feel like I really tailor my training to each individual horse and so I can't say that I have, you know, like Pirelli. I, I can't give you a step-by-step -step of how I do something. Um, and even when I teach Liberty clinics and things like that, I'll do something with one horse and I'll do something completely different with the other horse. And to me, that's important because I think it, it is good that we have some of these trainers that put together structured training methods because it helps people give them a structure but I think too many people get stuck in doing one thing and they forget to look outside of that and forget to you know remember that there's so many other options out there and that you can't you don't have to do everything a certain way just because that's what your method is um, and for me that is I think the most important part of my training so no I don't have a mythology I I look at a horse and 
and I work with them. And if I try something and it doesn't work, then I try something else. You know, there's kind of the old quote of like the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Yes, so, so true. Try not to be stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's your methodology. <laughs> try not to be stupid. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. Just use common you. sense. Think, what was that? Sorry. <laughs> Just use common sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is not so common, right? right. Um, <laughs> so I love what you said because I do feel like humans, as humans, sometimes we need a framework, a structure to learn from at least when we're very first starting to learn how to train horses. Right. But it's important that no matter what method or framework you do follow or you do deviate into other methods, that you always adapt your approach to the individual horse, which sounds like you do that. So that's fantastic. Um, do you compete or have any ambitions of competitive riding with horses? I... I do. I, I, um, I'm this year. I actually, we're, I'm taking myself and some of my students to this fun schooling show, um, in a few weeks, a dressage show. Um, and for myself, I would really like to compete, but not for competition's sake. For me, it's goal setting and it's, and I would really like to be able to take my horse through the upper levels and to, but to do it well and to do it without compromising the integrity of my training and his physical well-being. Um, so I want to do it. Will I score as well as somebody else? Probably not, but I want to be able to prove that, you know, you don't have to take shortcuts to be able to do this. And you can do this with, uh, you can ride an upper level test with the horse that is, you know, and my horse is not young. He's 17 with the horse that is older and that stays sound and you can ride them in a way that makes them more sound. And I think going back to your kind of your other question, like what led me into classical dressage is I read the, you know, I heard this quote from Philippe Carl that dressage is for the horse, not the horse for dressage. Um, and, and what really kind of struck out to me is that a lot of the things that classical riding preaches is that any horse can be ridden at an upper level. You know, you don't have to have a $500,000 horse. You don't have to have a really talented horse. Now, a really talented horse is going to have more expressive gates, is going to have more expressive piaf, passage, and things like that than, you know, your backyard pony but backyard pony can go all the way up. There are some things that maybe horses will have limitations. You know, maybe not every horse can do one tempi changes and things like that, but every horse can be taken at least to, I think, third or fourth level. Um, some it'll take longer, some it'll go faster, some will take more naturally to it, some it'll be harder, but if you ride them in a way that makes them stronger physically and mentally, well, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I love so that. So for me, that's that those are my incentive for competing. Yeah, that's really nice. But I want to know why you don't think you'll score well. Because this is where we get into maybe controversial topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think unfortunately a lot of the modern writing in today's dressage and things like that is both the riders and the judges that are at fault because riders are coming in with horses that are overflexed, with horses that are tense, with horses that, you know, just fling their legs and 
have expressive gates, but absolutely no basics of the training scale. And this, and that is what is rewarded at a higher level. You know, I have, if, if I, I guarantee you, I take, you know, I take my horse to a show and I ride him up and open in front of the vertical. And the comments that I will get is that the horse is, you know, not round enough and, and, and not through enough. And, and I think we, there's really a problem in the education of the judges and then the pressure of the sport also, because a, and I, and I understand because a judge that, you know, has, you have this famous upper level rider come to the show. And if this judge gives her bad scores because the horse is over flex, they're not going to invite this judge again because said rider has too much influence over, over the sport. And, and at the end, it all comes down to time and money. You know, how fast can I train a Grand Prix horse and how much money can I make off the said horse? And so if the horse is not sound anymore at 10, that's okay. They sell them to an amateur or, or get another one. Yeah, if, I was going to say, just try another one. Right. If you try to go through the levels and this one, it gets stuck at second or third level, sell it and get another one. It's not, it's it just, today's competition is not about training horses in a way that makes it easier for them to carry us. It's about how far can I push this horse and how fast and how much can I get out of it? And not, not, not really not keeping the horse in mind. And, and I think a lot of people have good intentions and just lack education or go around with blinders on. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad when you think about it and um, God forbid that you ride with your horse in front of the vertical. Right. (laughs) When people see that, they're like, oh no, the horse isn't round. And it's like, actually, you know, that's much healthier for the horse. (laughs) Right. And then that's a part of it because it's a misconception that, you know, is passed around is a horse has to be round. And, and for people who are not necessarily upper level riders, that's what they kind of cling on to. And then they go and they look at photos and videos of people who win gold medals at the Olympics. And they say, well, that's what her horse looks like. You know, it looks the same as mine. So if she's, if, you know, she's a gold level rider, how, how could they possibly be doing anything wrong? Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess a lot of the younger or amateur riders look up to those Olympians and um, really well-known riders because they're out there competing. And a lot of these classical dressage riders that are doing things correctly, they're not put out there. They're not putting themselves out there in that competition. Right, which I I think is a shame too. Yeah. Yeah, it is a shame because then they're not being role models. We can't see you. Right. So we There's can't no actually... representation. Yeah. And, and would, would they score not as well? Probably. But then, you know, people, all, you know, I have some students ask me, well, okay, you know, you say you don't like this rider and you don't like this rider and you don't like this rider, then, you know, who, who can I look at? And, yeah. and I say, well, you know, look at videos from 50 years ago. Yeah. And it, it, and it's hard. It's hard to find uh, videos of somebody competing with a horse that is ridden in a classical way. Mm. But I think, you know, I don't know if other people think like this, but if I were to watch, say, the World Championships or the Olympics in dressage and I saw someone who was doing it with lightness and the horse looked happy, 
I would still notice that. Like I would still go, she's awesome. I want to look at the way she trains. I wouldn't necessarily just look at who's winning. I think part of it is the kind of movements that are rewarded are really impressive. You know, horses are coming in with these really impressive extended trot where their front legs just basically come over their ears and good classical riding is not so showy yeah it's it's not it's not so appealing to an audience because it's it's just it's fluid yeah um but not necessarily like wow yeah yeah who are the people that you think are doing it the right way even if they're not competing do you have any examples i mean it's hard to it's hard to list off of the the top the top of my head and i and i don't I don't follow enough what kind of what, what others are doing and what is going on in competition and stuff like that. Other than, you know, the kind of classical, most well-known classical riding masters like Philippe Carl, like uh, Manolo Mendez, like yeah. um, some other, some, 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 that's the only two names I can think of right now. There's lots of other ones. Absolutely. Um, there, there's no one I can think of the top of my head, which is hard, but you know, at the same time, I also, probably can't really list any other dressage riders off the top of my head either <laughs> yeah okay yeah so moving on what do you think makes a happy horse I think variety is inc- incredibly important you know other than the obvious you know feeding turnout and all of that making sure they have their basic survival needs I think variety in training and in environment is what enriches them the most and so whether you are a dressage rider, whether you do Liberty, whether you do clicker training, whether you do barrel racing, jumping, I don't know. I think horses should do everything. I think, you know, it's, I think they should, if you can, if you have a trailer, take them everywhere so that they can like experience the world around them. And, and I, I think that's what makes a happy horse mm. or, you know, just a horse that is out in a pasture full of other horses that is also a very happy horse. Would yeah. my horse be happy out in the pasture with other horses? Would he miss me? I would like to say so, but probably not. <laughs> He's a horse. Yeah. He would probably be just as happy with all of his friends in a huge pasture as he is at home working. That's the reality that you, of it. <laughs> yeah. And I love that you keep it real like that. Like you're not sugarcoating it and saying, no, oh, my horse wants to be with me 24 <laughs> seven. He's not a dog. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making with horses? I think, uh, not questioning themselves or questioning their methods. You know, if the horse does something, the go-to is, I need a different bit. I need a different tack. I I need, I, I, he needs different food. He needs different supplements. It's not what caused the issue. It's what can I do to fix it? And so, and I, and I've seen this happen with a lot of people who are maybe pretty wealthy is that, you know, the horse has a problem. It has a lameness problem. So we call the vet for the vet and then the vet says, okay, it's this. All right, treat it. Then the horse gets another problem, call the vet, treat it. Then the horse gets another problem, call the vet, treat it. Whereas you never ask yourself in the first place, well, what caused this problem? And sometimes it's not anything that you know we can help, but a lot of the time 
that's what it is because you know i like think that a lot of people with problem horses are really just horses with people problems absolutely yeah and i think it's always about finding what is the underlying cause or the the root cause of a problem rather than going oh well we'll just inject this or give them medication or get a bigger bit like you say so yeah that's interesting um speaking of mistakes that other people make what is something that you once did with horses that you now no longer do and why is that um I don't do a lot of vaulting anymore. Mm-hmm. I've and and I have I have nothing against against anybody that vault. Oh. I vaulted for many years, um, but for me, while it may not necessarily you know hurt the horse, I don't feel like it's you know it's not beneficial for them. Obviously, it's a it's a very but everything and everything we do with horses is very selfish in a way and it's and it's for us also and and our own pleasure um and so for me i've come to you know really dislike the use of side reins and things like that and i still and i still lunge um the the horse that we have here leo for vaulting and and he gets and i ride him throughout the week and things like that and he's a happy and sound and healthy horse but for myself and my own horses do i need to be vaulting not anymore um has it made me a better rider absolutely because it's taught me an incredible amount of balance and and just also really helped with riding young horses and knowing how to throw myself off if i need to um it's given me so many skills that i wouldn't have now so would i go back and change anything no i wouldn't um there's you know and one other thing when with poor little Oreo. I decided as a kid, I want to teach him to lay down. So look up videos of people teaching the horses to lay down. They go, oh, take a rope and wrap it around his leg and pull it. And you try to pull him over. Well, that didn't work. And we almost both got hurt. And he was very angry with me and wouldn't come into the stall for a few days and would run away from me. And I felt so bad and I never did it again. And after that, I found a different way to teach him to lay down. That didn't involve me, you know, brutalizing him or so I I have made mistakes just like anybody else. Um, But I think it's important to be able to acknowledge that and to be able to go back and say, all right, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that again, but I learned my lesson. And I think it's important to not judge other people for making mistakes too, because we do make them. Um, I think where we start to have a problem is when people know that they're making a mistake, but they don't want to admit it. Mm, Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I know a lot of people want to teach their horse to lie down. I get a lot of messages like, how do you teach your horse to lie down? And quite honestly, um, to all our listeners, this is the secret. I never taught them. I just allowed (laughs) them to do it. I allowed them (laughs) to do it like after a session they're a little bit sweaty or I've just washed them down. We go back to the sand and they're like, oh, I want to roll and lie down and just chill with you. So it's not something I actually teach. Um, And I I was the same. I've seen the videos on YouTube of people getting their horse to lie down and I saw them and I was like, that looks shocking. I'm not going to do that. Um, But yeah, we're all going to make mistakes, right? And, And I make them all the time still as long as we're recognizing that and pivoting, like you say. 
Um, so yeah, let's move on to the next question. Um, I guess these all these questions clustered together, they're there for a reason. They're all kind of similar on the same kind of page. What is something that you believe is true that a lot of horse people disagree with? Um, um, I think, yeah, going back to what I said earlier is that 90% of problem horses are horses with people problems and, and that, and it's hard to acknowledge that, you know, I'm riding and my horse is bucking every time I want to pick up the canner and no, it's not because he's being a jerk and it's not because he's been plotting all night long to just try and give me a really crappy ride because he's mad at me because I fed him 20 minutes late. No, horses don't think like that. Horses do not rationalize the way we do. They are very simple-minded creatures. They're very smart, but they're very simple-minded. It's either black or it's white. And if the horse is doing something, there's a direct reason at that moment for their reaction. And most of the time it's due to what we're doing and the stimulus that we're, they're just responding to the stimulus that we're giving them. Um, and so I think that, yeah, as much as it's hard to hear, 99% of the problems you have with your horse is your own fault. Yeah, that's so true. And sometimes when things are going wrong for me now, because I realize this, I go, this is a good thing that my horse isn't doing this because it's telling me that I need to right. do that yeah, is yeah. something I have to do different here rather than going, it's the horse's fault, the horse isn't doing it. So yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Now, more controversial questions. <laughs> <laughs> They're always the best ones. Um, what are your thoughts on the bits versus bitless debate? So I honestly think, they can both equally be as abusive. So to me, you can, you know, I see some dressage riders and they go around and they pull their horse into a frame and the horse is hyperflexed, but they're bitless. So everybody says, well, how could they be hurting the horse? They're bitless. To me, a horse that is overflexed and that is being ridden compressed is being compressed and is overflexed and is tight in the back, whether they have a bit in their mouth or not. If you use a bit correctly, you never have more than one or two pounds of force in each hand and you never use it in a way that it's not just directly in the corners of the horse's mouth. And so, and if the horse is well-educated from the beginning, like the young horses that I ride and that I've started, they're all incredibly light and they don't lean on the bit and they chew and and they have no problem with it. And if you teach the horse to take the bridle well, um, then the, I see absolutely no issue. So I have almost more of a problem with bitless because a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm bit riding bitless. Therefore, I can't be hurting my horse. And I think that's a really big and important misconception because it's absolutely not true. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. At the moment, personally, I'm riding with all oh, three, basically. So on the neck rope, right, yeah. and with a bit, and even within a session, I will use all three of those things. And it, it gives you a lot of awareness because going from the neck rope to, um, well, sometimes I'll go bitless to the neck rope to using a bit. And then when I've got um, the reins in my hands with the bit, I'm thinking, wow, I have to be super light and sensitive. It just gives you a new appreciation for how right, light yeah. you need to be. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so let's park the controversial stuff. Let's move on to some fun questions. So what horse-related purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last 12 months? Um, I mean, I bought a new helmet. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably a good thing. The old one I had, I had for 10 years and hit my head many times with it. Probably should have replaced it a long time ago. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big spender. So, so I really haven't had that many purchases other than you know your usual gloves yeah for me yeah. it's my gloves that that yeah. like I have a very specific brand of gloves that I buy and it's always the same ones and and I can only ride with those and and work horses with those and I can't work horses without gloves and so that's yeah my gloves and my helmet tell us what the brand of gloves are I use the Raquel's yes me too me too yeah. um but I'm guessing you don't use gloves because you get blisters on your hands uh well yes and no because okay. when you work with young horses on the lunch line and they, it's a little bit windy um yeah. then yes not from riding okay no. um but <laughs> because, but I mean during the winter here it's cold and wet and yeah. and during the summer I it's it's more of a safety yeah. precaution and then it becomes a becomes a habit really Yes, actually, I have had rope burn on my hands before and it's yeah. really painful. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you never know what's going to happen, I guess. Yeah. Um, and our winters aren't as cold as your winters, I don't think, but I do like wearing gloves in the winter. And also just to keep my hands clean because you would know right. like how, how dirty your hands get um, when you're out with the horses all day. But anyway, if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And what would you want to ask them? Um, that's kind of a hard question. Um, I've always been very intrigued by uh, Manolo Mendez's approach. So I would love, and he's down in kind of in your corner of the world. He is. Um, and so, so he's definitely somebody that I would love to work with. And I really like the kind of groundwork he does, especially the work he does with the bamboo and all of that. Um, I don't know very much about it, but I, I don't know that I would, necessarily want to have dinner with three horse people but I think I would want to watch them yeah watch three different people train yeah so so definitely um Manolo Mendez maybe Philippe Carl as well I really while I don't follow exactly his mythology I really like his style of riding and I think he is one of the most talented riders in the world and, and somebody who really has incredible feel, which is not something that can always be taught. Um, and, um, and the third one would probably be the author of the book that I'm reading now, which is uh, the complete training of horse and rider, uh, which would be uh, Alois Podaisky, who was the uh, direct, former director of the Spanish riding school. So, and I think I'd mostly just like to ride him, see him ride. Don't think he speaks he spoke English yeah <laughs> so it's not necessarily specific things that you would like to ask them it's more so just watching and absorbing how oh, they, yeah, I think so yeah. I that's how I learned the best I think yes I did an interview with Lynn Rusula early on in the uh -huh. podcast and she trained with Manolo Mendez so I know she did <laughs> yeah. oh do you know her I, really I I know I know of her just through yeah. through Instagram and yeah. yes I was very jealous yeah <laughs> And he does come to my area and do clinics. So maybe I'll have to sign up and do a clinic with him. Um, okay. So if you could turn back the time and talk to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself? I think 
don't be so hard on your pony because he tries really hard for you. And if something is not going the way you want, it's on you to find another way. Again, it's not, um, it's not your pony's fault. And I was really lucky to have my mom, um, who is not, who rides and all of that was, but never competed or anything, but she always had a very good intuition with horses and she was always good at saying, okay, that's enough, you know? you need to just get off and go put the horse away and stop because it's not going well and it's not going to go well. So, so try again tomorrow, but it's not his fault. And, and, you know, think about, think about what you were doing and, and, and don't, don't take it out. Don't take it out on your horse. Yeah, that's, that's good. Mm, I wonder if you would have been ready to hear that 10 years ago. You know how sometimes people, uh, no, I thought my mom was being annoying and, <laughs> and probably rolled my eyes at her and went, oh, it's fine, funny. but he's being, he's being a jerk. <laughs> he's yeah. doing it on purpose. <laughs> it's funny when I teach young riders, I will tell the rider exactly what the mom has already told the rider, mm. but the rider will listen to me because I'm not the mom. And the mom just right. goes, what? I just said that. <laughs> With with kids, I think it's hard. It's really hard teaching kids and finding the right balance between teaching them to be assertive, but then also being fair to the horse because I'll work with kids and I'll say, okay, you know, ask him to try and they'll be like, okay, try, try. (laughs) You got to really ask him. And you know, if the pony, if the pony doesn't go, sometimes they have to get a little bit louder, but then, you know, then they start saying, oh, well, he didn't trot when I asked him. So now I'm going to get mad. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing for kids to learn and to find the right balance. I think. Yeah. Being assertive and clear without being mean or mad or get frustrated. It is, it is tricky to teach kids, but how wonderful that you're teaching them as kids that instead of them growing up to be an adult rider and they're, they're continuing to be mean, mean and mad to their horses. But, um, Yeah. Anyway, um, how are you continuing to learn about horses? What are you currently studying? Do you, I mean, you did mention a classical trainer that you're working with now. Um, How often do you get trained? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I usually try to take lessons uh, once or twice a week. Um, And I'm lucky to have my trainer live really close and she comes to my place. And I usually um, we'll do lessons back to back while I'll ride my horse and I'll also ride Leo, the big Dutch warm blood. And that this, I've just like discovered this, this year is riding those two horses back to back in a lesson has like fast tracked my progress as a rider because they're just like polar opposites. You know, one of them is 18 hands and a Dutch warm blood who is not lazy, but who's more laid back and slower to your leg and stuff like that. And the other one is my 14-3 little like pocket rocket Lusitano who, you know, you blow on and he just <laughs> gets anxious. And so riding those two horses with the help of my trainer and being able to get on, get on them back to back like that um, has really, really helped me as a rider. It has also shown me that, you know, I have faults as a rider also because I, you take these two different horses who are, you know, have almost nothing in common. And yet some of the issues they have under saddle are the same. You know, they Mm. both have a harder time to the left. Why? Well, 
turns out that I'm really crooked. <laughs> and so there are issues that I had been creating and, and asymmetries that I was creating in the horses because of my own asymmetries. And so that goes back to, you know, somebody would say, well, he doesn't want to bend to the left. No, he's crooked because you're crooked. Yeah. It's just how it goes. It, they, it's not that they don't want to do something. It's if they don't do it, there's, there, there's a reason. Um, so that, and, um, and I read, um, uh, I'm reading like, a, I like go in and out of a couple different books, um, and then go back to some other ones. And I have a hard time just reading one book all the way through. Um, so it kind of, and it, and it kind of comes and goes and I, and I, and I let it, I try not to force myself to say, you know, you have to study every single day and because I already train and ride six days a week. Um, and on my day off, I ride my own horse and I spend time at the barn. And, and I have found that when I do that, when I'm really working a lot for an extended period of time, I don't, I don't want to burn out. I don't want to end up just so tired and mentally exhausted that I can't really put my best effort into the horses. And so if I have a day where I'm like, you know what, I just, I don't want to look at a horse today. I don't want to think about a horse. I don't want to read about a horse then I don't. And, and I think it's important as a trainer to take breaks like that when, when your hobby is also your job, um, it can, you can, I think easily become overwhelmed and, and, and burn out and then it, and then it's not fun anymore. And then you can't do your job as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's good that you have that because yeah, I think it would be easy as a trainer to become burnt out. And then you do hear of that. Some horse trainers leave horses altogether because they've just overworked it. Um, you mentioned some books. Can you tell us which books you kind of circulate and dabble in? So the one that I have now and that I really enjoy, um, the one I showed you, the complete training of horse and rider in the mm-hmm. principles of classical horsemanship um, by Alois Podeisky. Um, and this one is really good because it's it's easy. It's pretty easy to read. It's not not too technical. I've read some other ones where that you know just want to make my brain explode. Um, and this one is easy to understand, and it's and it very clearly goes kind of through the whole progression of training, from starting a young horse all the way to you know airs above ground because he was uh, in the Spanish riding school. Um, and another one that I just started reading, I'm not very far into it, and it's really interesting. It's called Horse Brain, Human Brain, and it's about the neuroscience of um, horsemanship, which I think is just like mind blowing. Um, you know, just the fact that we can sit on a horse and think about asking them to move their legs and they do it as if it was our own legs. Like how two brains can communicate like that to me is absolutely fascinating. So, um, so that is one book that I really like. And then, um, I have, a another one. Let's see. I actually, I think I have it right here. I don't remember the name of it. Maybe not, but anyways, it's a book on, um, biome- biomechanics of, I think it's biomechanics of horse and rider by Nancy Nicholson. It's, it's, it's like a, it's basically like a spiral bound book. Um, and so that one is really, um, is really technical. So I usually go to that book if I have a, yes, 
<laughs> yep, that's it. Biomechanical writing. Yeah. Um, and so and so that one is not so much what I read before I go to bed. That one's um, a tricky read. <laughs> right. It's more if I have like a specific question um, or um, something is intriguing or I ha or I have a student who I'm telling them to do something in a certain way and it's not working. And then I go look through and I'm like, OK, you know, how does this work? Yeah. So, so yeah, th those are those are the books that I'm in right now. Oh yeah, that's cool. I really like. I think I've got all of those books actually. Yeah, <laughs> so I've got the horse brain, human brain on Kindle. I'm an absolute nerd when it comes to books. So, uh -huh. um, but I'm like you in that. I'll start. I'll read for a bit, and then I'll go. Yeah, I'm kind of done with this for now, and then I'll go on to something else, and then I'll come back to that depending on um, what I'm motivated in. Uh, right like it depends on what session you've had with yeah. your horses and stuff like that so true. and I think another thing that I like to mention for me you know I know people have mixed feelings about social media and the pressure it puts on and stuff like that but for me it's honestly it's a huge motivator I want to have content to share I like to share stuff on social media I love to share photos of my horses and stuff like that and so it, sometimes it pushes me I'm like you know what yeah I need more content for my social media so maybe I don't feel like going out to the barn today but maybe I will because maybe you know I can get some cool footage of something and then share it um and it then you know I scroll through things and I see you know videos and pictures of you with your horses or somebody <laughs> else with their horses I'm like that's cool I want to try to do that and so then I go out and so I think it, that is also a big source of inspiration for me and motivation. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any accounts on Instagram that are your go-to? Like, are there any that really do inspire you? I know this wasn't one of the questions, so just off the top of your head. Um, I mean, we can all go to your list on Instagram and just follow everyone that you're following. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can, yeah, you can do that. I can't, I, there's a lot of people that, that I look at. I really like, um, you can't remember anybody's name. I can't remember anybody's Instagram name, but anyways, there's, there's, I, I like looking at different ones. Even sometimes I look at things and I'm like, oh, well, you know what? I don't really agree with how this person is riding in this video, but I yeah. saw they posted something else and I like that. Yeah. And so, and so I, I like to see how sometimes I see people where I'm like, oh yeah, this is exactly, you know, totally same style of riding. And I'm like, oh, this not really the same, but it still sort of fits. But there's some things I disagree with, but there's some things that I really like. So it yeah. teaches me to have a, a better critical eye, I think. Mm. Um, and and to, to know what, what, what I like and what I don't like. Mm. And, and also to be okay with the fact that not everybody has the same opinion. Exactly. And I think, well, I know, no one's gonna be exactly you. So no matter who you draw inspiration from, there's probably going to be something that they say or do that you're like, eh, probably wouldn't do it that way. And that's okay because everyone's on their own journey. Everyone's an individual. Um, but that's a great thing about social media. We can just get so much inspiration from videos and photos and yeah, connect with people all over the world, which is what we're doing right now. So um, before we wrap up, I've just got a couple of other questions. Um, if your horses could talk with words, what do you think they would say to you and what would you like to say to them? My horse would honestly probably ask what dinner, what time dinner is, what he's <laughs> having for dinner and when's breakfast. Yeah. Um, is there a snack included? Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I'm pretty sure that is what he thinks about. 24 seven. Yeah. 
So, or when do I get to go and turn out? And no, he, you know, he's, he's, when he likes, I, I have, you know, routine with him. He gets ridden in the morning. And usually when I come home at night, he's gets turned out. And so um, he's been, if he hears me walking down the driveway, I can hear him calling because he's happy to see me. Yes. Because he knows I'm going to turn him out more so (laughs) but it you know it still it still makes me really happy because I can make him happy yeah Um, and so if I could talk to him I would ask him what I would really like to know is what he sees Mm. because I know that he can't see very well but and he has been looked at by specialists and they they can't tell exactly what it is that he sees and doesn't sees um and sometimes he acts you know, most people that don't know him have no idea that he is pretty much blind. And so I don't know what he sees. And it could be a lot more than what I think, or it could just be a lot less because horses are so intuitive that they can see without seeing. Yes. Um, and so, and so I think it would, I think it would really help my training approach too, if I knew exactly, you know, when he's riding, when he's like shying away from some, from something, it's, it's because it looks really strange to him. It's not, it's not that, you know, he's being unreasonable. It's, he's, he's not a, he's not a, he's a very brave horse by nature, but some things just scare him. And sometimes it makes no sense. Um, but I, yeah, I would really like to, I would ask him, it is, you know, what do you see? Yeah, that would be so interesting, not just for a blind horse, but horses in yeah. general. Like, I think we've got a little bit of understanding of how their eyesight yeah. is different, but we wouldn't truly know without, you know, seeing through their eyes, basically. That would be really interesting to see how they view the world and how they also view us um, on a kind of different level. So uh, what is next for you and where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? What is your ultimate goal with horses? Uh, for me in the you know next couple of years, it's, really just kind of keep growing my business. Now I'm, I have a, I have a really great clientele of regular clients and regular horses. My schedule is pretty much always full. Um, and so I'm at a good place where I can work, not be overworked. I can ride my own horse also. Um, I would really love to obviously have my own barn and, and all of that, whether, you know, that's a possibility. I don't know. I live in a place where everything is really expensive. So, so will I ever be able to afford my own big equestrian property? Probably not. I would really like to be localized at one barn. Um, that would make my life a lot easier and I would be able to take in more horses for training. Um, and not have to drive around so much. Um, although I don't really mind it that much. Um, one of like my ultimate dreams, and then, you know, I'm really being a dreamer here, um, would be to have a facility that I can turn into like a equestrian circus school where, you know, I can teach classical dressage. I can teach Liberty. I can teach, I can teach vaulting. I can teach some trick riding, some Roman riding, and then have the arena be able to be converted into a small theater to create shows and things like that. Cause I still have my artistic creative side of me that constantly wants to create something. Um, so that is something that I would really love to be able to do one day. Maybe who knows? That would be amazing. That sounds like an incredible goal. And I have no doubt that you'll get there one day and maybe yeah. have your, and have your own barn, like training barn alongside that. That sounds incredible. 
Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been absolutely amazing chatting with you. I've really enjoyed all of your answers to the questions. And before we go, can you tell us where our guests can find out more about you? So I have my website that is just jchorsetraining.com. Um, my Instagram, jchorsetraining, Facebook page, also jchorsetraining. Um, and then uh, YouTube is Oreo Liberty uh, in parentheses, JC Horse Training. So. Are you on TikTok as well? Yes, yeah, I am. <laughs> JC Horse Training also. <laughs> I haven't checked you out on YouTube yet, so I'm definitely going to do that after today's chat. So, yes, thank you once again. Today was amazing, and I'm really looking forward to following your journey in the future. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions from today's show, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to reach out and say hi, I would love to connect with you on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Remember to also register for my free connection and communication mini course at amaliadempsey.com.